zone. You can't go. All the plants are gonna die. I'm gonna take a bath. Bad dates. I'll alert the media. Boys, keep off the moors. It's evil. Don't touch it. The name's Pliskin. No more hangers. Welcome to Vintage Video, where we're rewatching the 80s so you don't have to. We'll be reviewing every major film release of the 1980s in chronological order, overanalyzing what you've seen and spoiling what you haven't. I'm Patrick O'Reilly. I'm Jesse Bayless. And I'm Richard Wells. And today we're discussing Savage Harvest, released May 23rd, 1981. It was written by Robert Blees and Robert L. Collins, based on a story by Ralph Helfer and Ken Noyle, directed by Robert L. Collins, and released by 20th Century Fox. Producer Sandy Howard announced a $4 million budget for Savage Harvest in 1980 with the intention to shoot in Kenya and Mexico. The budget grew to $5.2 million when Mexico was swapped out for Rio de Janeiro, Brazil. I don't understand why this movie would require that much money. No. It's, it's, a, a, single it's a single house. location. Yeah. Uh, but there's a lot of insurance that goes in with well, the lions. <laughs> yeah, maybe. <laughs> Tom Skerritt and Melinda Dillon were initially cast to star in the film. Dillon is possibly best known for her turn as the mom in A Christmas Story, but she's also the mom in Harry and the Hendersons and Close Encounters of the Third Kind. In our home, we commonly quote her character Rose Gator, wife of Jimmy Gator from Paul Thomas Anderson's Magnolia. Whenever Jesse answers a question with, I don't know, I usually respond with, you know, but you won't say. (laughs) (laughs) You do. But you won't say. I don't know. For whatever reason, I always used to confuse her and Blythe Danner. And oh. I noted today that they're both in Two Wong Fu, Thanks for Everything, Julie Newmar. Yeah. Early in the production, Dylan's part was recast with Michelle Phillips. All the animals were provided by world-famous animal trainer Ralph Helfer, who gets a story credit on the film, and whose daughter, Tana Helfer, makes her feature film debut as Christy. This will not be the last film in 1981, where a father endangers his daughter with lions for a movie. (laughs) We start with a crawl. For many years, Africa, the world's hungriest continent, has been plagued by drought. A vast body of land encompassing 12 countries exceeding in size all of Western Europe has been devastated. Ancient tribes have been forced to leave their villages to seek work in the cities. Those who remain poach starving game herds. Hungry predators seek food in any form. Not even humans in remote areas are safe from the predators. The motion picture you're about to see is based on actual events. We see a title introducing Tana Helfer as Christy, who, as I mentioned, is the daughter of the animal trainer slash writer slash producer of the film, Ralph Helfer. We get our opening credits over wildlife footage, which has been tinted orange to indicate drought. We finish with skeletons of animals, and we see a pipe dripping water into sand, solitary drops at a time. In a small village, a man carries an older gentleman down a path as the rest of the village streams from their homes with stuff packed in bags or suitcases. The man places who I can only assume is his father on a bed in a hut before turning to leave with his two young sons. The old man waves goodbye. Perhaps he's too old to leave the village and doesn't want to abandon their home? I'm not quite clear here. Their final words to each other are in an African language, and it's not subtitled, so I have no idea what they're saying. Yeah, I kind of presumed that he was too frail to make the trip, and they can't, like, they acknowledge that they can't make it with him, so they're going to go without him. Yeah. But it seems like he's either dying anyway, because 
because they leave a guard outside. Yeah, just to wait for him to die, I guess. Yeah. Well, that okay. So that was the part that confused me because I figured you're gonna leave him. So are you presuming that he is on like very close to the verge of death or like? Because is this because it's a young kid that they leave behind to like to guard him to guard yeah. him like a teenager and I was like is he just gonna run ahead and catch back up with the group or like yeah. what's happening? Another part of me thought that they left this guy behind specifically to sacrifice to the lions so oh. they had a head start, which maybe maybe that's not the case. Or perhaps they were going to come back with a vehicle, like oh the, maybe the, like oh so they were going to protect him until they got back. Yeah. But it, like you said before, that there's no subtitles for what's happening. Right. In Lion POV, we tilt up on the same village where one man has been armed with a spear to protect the older gentleman. The guard sits by a fire in the center of the village. The old man's eyes open wide when he hears lions grumbling outside. The guard lights a torch with the campfire and moves through the village when suddenly, in the old man's thatched roof hut, a full-size lion tumbles through the ceiling into the room and the man screams until he's dragged out of bed by the lion. How do you get a lion to jump through a hut? I don't know. I, like it's. I mean, like I, I get in other movies when we like take a chicken and throw it or something like that or a cat. But like, how are you getting a lion through a hut? Maybe there's a platform <laughs> on the outside that's right next to the roof, and then you put something the lion wants on the thatched roof, but it can't support him. So he oh, thinks okay. he's just jumping to collect it right. and falls through. Oh, yeah, I'm, I'm pretty sure that that's exactly what happened. Also, I feel, and I don't know this, but. I feel that you're when you teach an animal how to destroy a thatched roof hut <laughs> or or to to attack a human being. Yeah. Like even even if it's a controlled environment like or a fake human it's still dangerous. Yeah, it's like this is a learned behavior. It's like what we saw Hunter Thompson doing with that Nixon dummy. <laughs> <laughs> a kerosene lamp is knocked over in the attack and the entire hut is quickly ablaze. We cut to an American family dressed in safari gear eating breakfast on a deck. The sound is not great in this transfer, and all of the characters are talking over each other, so I'm not getting a lot of information here. I do hear the word subsidize a few times, Yeah. so I think they're talking about a government policy that affects the farm that operates from this ranch. Yeah. My takeaway from this scene is that it's like a sharp contrast to the poverty and, and, and wasteland and drought that we're seeing everywhere, because this table is covered in excessive amounts right. of food, mm-hmm. and these people are just being playful and... Like, and they're also obnoxious. talking about all this money they get from the government to yeah. operate their farm here. Yeah, whereas people are obviously leaving this village because they can't stay anymore because yeah. things are so bad. And the kids are spoiled, too, because they're like, oh, let's set up a thing so we can watch movies in the house. And yeah, it's like, let's get a Betamax. Other people are sacrificing their grandfathers to <laughs> yeah. the lions. Maybe. <laughs> Probably not. <laughs> An African man at the table with the family criticizes the patriarch, Derek, for the way he runs his plantation until the guy reminds him that his family has run this plantation for three generations and he doesn't need any advice. A young man at the table addresses Derek by his first name, and we will learn that this is because Derek is his stepfather. He asks that repairs be made to the shortwave radio, and Derek reminds him that an aerial antenna is needed first. We cut to Arthur Mallet as Magruder. Magruder! <laughs> <laughs> Pulling up the van outside the abandoned village from the beginning of the film, Magruder. He finds the still smoldering hut where the lion stole the old man and follows a trail of blood to the nearby brush where he sees the human head being picked clean by a family of crows. We cut to a Pan American flight touching down at an airport. 
We see Tom Skerritt as Casey saying his goodbyes to a whole line of people. We cut back to Derek driving a fancy car down the road while he listens to an eight track of what I think is the Danube Waltz. They're just not a popular part of it. And it's not one of the 2001 The Space mm-hmm. Odyssey sections that I could for sure identify as that song. <laughs> he sees a huge line of villagers in the middle of nowhere and parks the car to call out to them. A representative informs Derek that they've been forced out of their village by the drought and dangerous animals and they're headed to the city. Derek is furious because now there's no one to work his plantation. He promises that he can bring them good water, but it's no use. These people know better than to trust him. We cut back to the home of the plantation-owning family, where the youngest daughter, Christy, is practicing tennis against a wall outside. It's painted in such a way as to imply that it was built specifically to practice tennis against. Mm -hmm. Inside the house, Wendy asks if they can please leave Africa and go home, and Maggie says that it's not up to them. Wendy suggests that she make up a lie to kick her out. I should explain who these people are, even though the film didn't. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. I, I spent most of the film like, I don't understand these relationships. <laughs> Maggie is the, is the wife of Derek, and Wendy is his Derek's, niece. Derek's niece. Derek's niece. So right. this is her husband's niece. Yes. And the 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 other two children, teenagers in the house, are Derek's stepchildren. Are Derek's stepchildren? Maggie's children. Maggie's children. Yes. yes. And uh, Tom Skerritt's character, Casey, is their dad. Is, he is the is the biological father of yeah. the children. That having been said, Wendy suggests that Maggie make up a lie to get her kicked out of the house. You could tell Derek that I'm a pain in the ass and you can't stand me around you. Well, I could, and you are somewhat. But I've grown rather fond of you, Wendy, pain in the ass or not. It's exile. Derek parks his car in town and walks to a local bar, waving away panhandlers like an expert. It sounds like he's trying to import workers from Nairobi to man his plantation, but he hasn't had any luck. He takes his drink out to the bar's patio and is quickly spotted by Skerritt as Casey, who takes a seat across from him. They rib each other as friends until Derek starts unloading his actual life problems on Casey. I, I don't know if they're ribbing each other as friends. It seemed semi-friendly. I didn't realize that these people were both at one point married to the same woman until the very end of this conversation. But Derek complains that his workers are all quitting and the crops are dying. And as they part ways, Derek invites Casey to stop by the place to see his own kids and Derek's wife. Which is the first clue that we yeah. get that they were not Derek's children or that mm-hmm. they were Casey's. Well, now, you're not afraid to see me again go running off with me, are you? <laughs> not the slightest sliver of doubt. I think a funnier line might have been, I'm counting on it. <laughs> Back at the house, Christy is practicing tennis against the tennis ball wall again. Magruder pulls up in his van and he and Christy walk together to the house. Magruder asks if her dad is around, and she corrects him that her stepdad left for Nairobi today, and he'll be back tomorrow. Magruder asks Maggie if he can use her wireless, and she directs him inside, where her son is still trying to fix the radio. While Magruder talks to Maggie by the window, Wendy hits on her step-cousin, John, in the foreground, and he seems annoyed by it. Magruder is here to warn the family that the animals are being starved out of the wilderness and into populated areas. He confesses to Maggie that he discovered human remains in a nearby village. Drought dries up the streams, grass withers, grass eaters die, and predators seek new game. He warns her that lions who have tasted human flesh before lose their fear and become comfortable moving into the cities. 
<laughs> All I could picture is like them getting an yeah, apartment. Yeah, they got a bunch of suitcases. <laughs> they got their suitcases. Yeah. <laughs> I, don't, I don't have. A, I'm not afraid of living in the city anymore. When her son John is unable to get the radio working, Magruder instead plans to drive somewhere with a 5,000 watt radio about 60 kilometers away. If you're curious, 60 kilometers is about 20 feet. I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> Before he leaves, Magruder suggests that Maggie keep the kids and pets inside as often as possible to avoid an attack. Magruder offers them a ride out of town, but Maggie refuses, insisting that they are in no danger here. We cut back to the Nyakio bar. Nyakio. N-Y-A-K-I-O. And the restaurant patio where Casey overhears two men talking about Derek. One of them has been ordered to deliver a warning to the plantation residents about a potential large animal attack, and Casey eavesdrops before telling them that Derek is headed to Nairobi. He offers to deliver the warning himself and pay his children a visit, and he asks the man to call Nairobi and tell Derek to get back home. Call Nairobi. Just call Nairobi. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. it's like, just, just there's one phone in Nairobi. Derek's Hi, probably Nairobi. next to it. Is Derek there? <laughs> what are you wearing? <laughs> Back at the house, John is still working on the radio but not having any luck. He climbs up on the roof to make adjustments to the antenna. As he climbs, we watch him from a lion POV. We cut to Magruder driving his van through the desert when something goes wrong. A warning light turns on in the car and it breaks down. Magruder hops out and opens up the back of the vehicle to check the engine, where the, the engine is in the back because it's a Volkswagen. Magruder reaches right into the engine and starts touching pieces right away, even though I thought it would still be really hot yeah. since you're in the <laughs> desert and it just overheated. He digs some tools out of the back of the vehicle, but while he's working, he notices a black panther behind him. He discreetly closes up the back of the vehicle and then gets back in the driver's seat when he notices a second cat in front of the car. He rolls up the driver's side window and closes the sunroof. Okay, for the record, I googled it. Nobody actually calls them black panthers. I do. <laughs> That's not a thing. It is it's either, a panther. Well, it's a panther, but panther is kind of a generic term. Mm. So it is either a black leopard or a black, uh, what's the other term? Now I can't remember. I looked it up too long ago. But, jaguar? Yes, that's the term. Thank you. Jaguar. Or black panther, you could say. You could, but panther is a very generic right, term. Right, like that, a lion is technically a panther because they're all panthera. Yeah, pa well, panthers are just large cats. Right. And so nobody who knows what they're talking about actually says the term black panther unless you're a I never to said I know what I'm talking about. <laughs> There's the mistake. <laughs> but also, why aren't these lions for the sake it's of continuity weird. of yeah. the film? Yeah. It is odd. I mean, I guess maybe they're just trying to show that it's not an isolated thing, that all large cats are having issues right maybe. now. He tries again fruitlessly to get the engine started as the cats shake his van back and forth. One of them crashes down hard on the roof of the vehicle, and Magruder shudders with fright. Back at the plantation house, a member of their staff is preparing a large lamb meal in the kitchen. Christy is complaining to her mother about how ill-prepared she is for an upcoming contest with another tennis player. On the way to the plantation, Casey comes across the remains of Magruder's van, tipped on its side and splattered with blood. Did if, they tip it over? Apparently. I mean, I, I, mean, I don't I know. I think there had to be more than those two cats. Yeah, I was going to say, like, I, I... Maybe a rhino came out to help. I don't think that a Volkswagen bus is the heaviest vehicle in the world, but the 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 why of tipping it over... Yeah. Yeah, that's weird. Well, for some reason it has a canvas top. Mm. 
Yeah. So, the, you know, if you got to open this can of human, you know, you got to you, you enter the easiest way. You got to tip it over and scratch well, it open. Well, there was definitely some Volkswagen bugs that had cloth tops. Yeah. yeah. They were buttoned. But I don't understand why a van just has a square of fabric on the top of it. Like, what is the purpose of this? Because it's not like you can take the whole roof off. Right. I definitely got some like tremors vibes. Yeah. Of that of him coming across just like the the destroyed vehicle with blood and kind of looking around. Like, it's like the Con Ed guys at the edge of town that yeah. are trying to replace the power lines. Or the Doc's car that's been sucked under the ground. Yeah. Casey follows a trail off the road to a pair of hyenas fighting over one of Magruder's legs. It's not attached to him anymore. He shoots at the animals and they scatter, and we cut forward in time to Casey dumping gasoline all over a pile of rocks, which he presumably used to bury as many parts of Magruder as he could find. Yeah, I, I, I was so upset with this. Okay, I understand you're putting the rocks on it, but you don't need to burn it. And then he dumps his entire can of gasoline yeah. and then throws yeah, it away. Yeah, you're definitely not going to need any of this. I was like, you idiot. But it's like, really, like, these animals are starving to death. Here's what we should do. Deprive them of more food. <laughs> In the name of my friend who is clearly already dead. Mm-hmm. I mean, that was a line from uh, Jurassic Park 2. Uh, animals don't hunt when they've been fed. Right. I think it was also a line in, uh, what movie was that? It was the ninth configuration because they talked about the circus show where they had the lion and the lamb that got mm. along so well. And it was yeah. because between shows they would just feed a lamb to the lion. So this scene and the next scene are them really trying to pad the runtime, I feel. Yeah. Because they do this epic slow zoom in on Tom Skerritt over this really like. It's like a five or six second dissolve here. Yeah. And then the next scene is, uh, I can't remember, Maggie? Yeah. Uh, looking out the window with binoculars and just panning 360 degrees Yeah, and we're looking at desert. her. We see her POV of, of just hillside, but there's no lions. She doesn't yeah. see anything. No, nothing. But she's looking for a while. We cut back to Casey's Jeep approaching the plantation, and something is leaking from underneath after he drives over a sharp rock. Christy heads back outside to practice her forehand, and a lion watches her practice against the tennis wall. In the kitchen, their cook can hear the ball and heads outside to remind Christy that she shouldn't be out here. The lion POV watches them argue for a moment, and then we get an insert shot of blood from the lamb that she was preparing on the cook's apron. <laughs> and I was like, oh, God, no, really? Suddenly, a lion pounces on her from above, and it's clearly a real person being attacked by a lion. The footage is horrifying. I'm pretty sure it's a stunt person that replaces the woman at the last second, yeah. but... But, I mean, there there were two mo- moments of this movie that seem really real to me and yeah. upsetting, and this was one of them. And there's not enough, there, there's no protection on this person who's no, being no, attacked no, by a Not at all. They're just wearing the clothes that the woman was wearing. Right. Like a short sleeve dress. Christy watches the lion tear their cook apart and then slowly wanders across the yard toward the house when an even bigger lion hops over a wall in front of her and she slowly backs away down the driveway from it. Just then, her father skids up in his Jeep and collects her in the passenger seat before carrying her the rest of the way across the yard into the house. But, like, okay, if you're trying to get into the house and there's lions out, don't you drive all the way up to the steps and then, like, get out and drag her in so therefore your Jeep will be at the steps of the house? You would, except for they have this dumb courtyard off the front of the house with a a gate in it. Oh, okay. So he has to carry her across that. Got it. He can't drive much closer. John is firing a rifle to scare away the lions while Casey carries Christy inside. 
Casey gets a gun from in the house and chases the lions away, hoping to rescue the woman, but the lions drag her body into the tree line and out of sight. John continues firing after they lose sight of the creatures, just as likely hitting the woman as the lions with his gun, until Casey says they have to give up and head inside. On the way back to the house, Casey notices the jeep is leaking gas. He pulls out another rifle from the toolbox in the bed of his jeep, and as he plugs a clip into it, he has the barrel pointed directly at his son's gut, which is weird. <laughs> it's like, come on, don't point this gun at someone while you're loading it. Yeah, he, he's supposed to be at least some kind of an expert. Yeah. Inside, Christy is obviously traumatized by the woman whose death she just caused. She's sitting on the couch with her mother sobbing. Casey asks why Christy was outside unsupervised. <laughs> what the hell was she doing out there? I didn't know she was out there. Why the hell didn't you know she was out there? Obviously, this is a stressful situation for everyone, but seriously, you have three children you're in charge of keeping safe, and you don't know where they all are at the same time when someone warned you earlier today that lions are coming to kill everyone? To be fair, I feel like we learn later in the movie, this girl is an idiot and will not listen to That's her mother true. anyways. Yes, yeah. that is true. <laughs> I hate like these scenes, the next few scenes of them walking around the house, because all the windows are wide oh, open. open. Yeah. I was yes. like, what? what are you doing? Another member of their staff, possibly the husband of the woman who was just killed by a lion, is walked to John's room to rest. John's step-cousin, Wendy, weirdly says, I wish your father was here now. My father is here now. Honestly, though, why would she word it that way? Wouldn't she say, I wish my uncle was here, not I wish your father, when his father actually is there? Maggie brings medicine to Jirogi, the man sleeping in John's room. And outside, we see a whole pride of lions bounding over the walls and down paths toward the house. Now, is that guy, that guy her, the, the cook's husband? I think so, because yeah, he seems so. especially distraught about yeah. it. Yeah, okay. Casey can hear them growling outside and for some reason has to instruct the children to close the shutters. I don't know why they weren't already doing this. Yeah. yeah and John, when he, when he tells John to like close the shutters, uh, my note is John acts like Paul Rudd in Wet Hot American Summer when he's asked to <sighs> clean up the food. He's like, ugh. <laughs> It's like, like, it's a do it, just do it. <laughs> yeah, and I, this must be like, oh, like it's a warm climate kind of house thing. But the security on these windows, like, I, I don't feel like they have actual glass panes in them. Like, they're no, only, it's it's literally just shutters. It's that's just all they wooden have. shutters. That's all that closes these windows. Casey assures his family that the lions will move on when they get tired of waiting. Wendy offers to grab some coffee for Casey, and when she leaves the room, he asks John who she is. Wendy? Derek's niece. 19, kind of a hellraiser. Derek's sister sent her here to keep her away from some man. Casey asks if they're an item, and John says that he's no good with girls. He tells his father that he's sorry to disappoint him by not being a ladies' man. Hey, every kid should have one absentee father. Makes him self-reliant and resourceful. Casey tells the kid to stop feeling sorry for himself. Got the self-pity, kid. I was only asking because I wanted to hit on her. Ugh. John starts complaining about Derek being distant and annoying, and Casey invites him to live in his own shitty apartment in Nairobi. John complains that he only visits once a year, and his sister cries for days every time he leaves. The lions outside are fighting with each other, and some of it looks like pretty violent. Yeah. <laughs> I wouldn't want these lions to do this all the time. Casey sits down at the desk in the office and tries his hand at repairing the radio. John tries to blame Derek, but Casey reminds him that it's his responsibility to keep it in working order. Casey says if they can't reach anyone with the radio, they'll have to drive away from the house. 
He says John should drive while he handles the guns, and they'll put the girls in the back seat. He can't be sure how far the Jeep will get because of the gas leak. If only I had some extra gas. Yeah, that'd be great, right? (laughs) Casey takes the butt of a rifle and bashes out slats in the shutters (laughs) to show John how many lions are currently chilling in the front yard. It's like, you could have just told me. You didn't have to break open the only thing that's keeping the lions out, you idiot. Yeah, they keep (laughs) smashing windows and breaking open shutters just to look outside. And it's really pissing me off. (laughs) Also, they'll say a line later, but... I was like, why aren't you shooting them? Like, yeah, like you could be killing them at least one at a time. There would yeah. be fewer lions outside. Like, I don't know. Maybe, maybe a shotgun shell is not enough to kill a lion. Maybe you need something more like an elephant gun. Like, well, I don't you know. should have sniper rifles here too. If you're if you're regularly hunting in this area, yeah, which I assume is the explanation for all the guns. Because because I figure even if you take out like two of the males and maybe a female. I think the lions would go, eh, maybe we should move yeah. on. <laughs> or they would eat those two lions and they wouldn't be so starving. Yeah. I think I'll give the show away one more try. That night, Maggie's playing the piano when Wendy pours herself a glass of wine and Maggie gives her shit about it, insisting it won't help. Neither will playing the piano, Maggie. The lions outside are suddenly much louder and Wendy drops her glass on the couch. John tries to comfort Christy again while Wendy prays through tears for someone to rescue them. Casey encourages Maggie to play All You Need Is Love on the piano to cheer everybody up. Casey moves around the room getting all the kids up off the couch while the family sings Beatles songs in unison in the living room, and an entire fucking lion drops out of the chimney in John's room next to the sleeping Jirogi. Again, I'm like, how do you get a lion to go through it granted i understand that this is probably not a real chimney and you can shove an entire lion down an actual chimney but that means that you had a lion outside of this fake chimney that you're shoving down this relatively small lion-sized hole yeah and i don't know how you convince them to do that yeah (laughs) santa claus (laughs) it quickly attacks and kills the man in the bed and then drags his corpse through the rest of the house The family is now singing I Want to Hold Your Hand as a full-sized lion carries a dead man into the living room. (laughs) Casey gets in front of it and his family, and then he advises John to slowly move into the next room and open the front door so they have a path to scare the lion through. John opens the doors, and they wait another 15 seconds before scaring the lion outside. I was kind of hoping that as soon as he opened the door, like four or five more lions would just come in. Exactly. (laughs) Kill the whole family. John insists that they need to go after the lion and kill it so they can recover the body of their friend in case he's still alive. What is it with me or Christy? You gonna let them take one of us out too? Right now we're gonna go into your room and find out how the hell that lion got in here. He gives John a gun so they can check the room. They quickly deduce that it came down the fireplace and shove a small desk that a lion could definitely move into the fireplace before locking the door to the room and then blocking it with a bureau from the outside, even though the doors open into the room. Yeah, but I guess the logic would be, to me, I was thinking about that too, but I guess the logic would be that the lion would be pushing pushing on it. And eventually, oh, it's to keep it from breaking off? Yeah, because yeah. eventually it would break off the hinges, but at least if there's something solid sure. on the other side. Yeah. This house, though, has... An unusually large amount of like bureaus and things like yeah. that. Very tall, heavy wood furniture. And I'm like, how do you have? That? I mean, I know it's supposed to be a fancy house, but I'm like, I don't have that much furniture. What are you keeping all these bureaus? 
Guns. Not guns, though. <laughs> yeah. apparently. Apparently. They don't have enough. <laughs> Lion bait. <laughs> Once it's in place, Casey finally answers John's question, admitting that if it would keep the others safe, he would let the lion take one of his children. And if it meant saving the others, yes, John. I'd let it take you. John should be less shocked to hear this than he is. Well, I mean, if the kid's already dead, like, yeah, you gotta let it go just to keep everyone else safe. I yeah. get it. <laughs> everyone is sitting back on the couch in the living room when Maggie shares that Magruder offered to take them all to town. Casey needlessly informs them that it's just as well they didn't accept his ride because he found Magruder's corpse on the way here. <laughs> Why tell them that? They're yeah. already so sad. Casey heads to the kitchen to make a snack, and Wendy, having given up on trying to screw his son, follows him out of the room. We get a lot of needless backstory from this Wendy character. She was born in the UK, but she grew up in New York. She was in England last year, and she fell in love with a drummer, and her father found out, so they ran away to Amsterdam for a month, and then her father <laughs> sent her to Africa. Who cares? Yeah. None of this matters. What a needlessly complicated story. It seems pretty obvious the only reason that she is Derek's niece and not Derek's daughter is because they didn't want any what-are-you-doing step-bro moments. <laughs> not that a step-cousin feels any less <laughs> incestual. Yeah. Wendy's story in the kitchen is mercifully interrupted by a lion trying to bust through the door. Casey rushes to lock it because apparently they hadn't locked the door yeah. to this kitchen. <laughs> Casey calls the kids for furniture to barricade the door, and John brings over the refrigerator. Also, I want to I want to say like, and I and I don't know. I predicted that this would happen, but I don't know if this was what it was. Is the paw coming through the window? A hand in a, uh, in a lion's sleeve? Oh, it for sure is. Percent. I was like, yes. Yeah. <laughs> I called it. Yeah. Once they get the fridge leaned against the door, we see the exact moment we predicted last week. <laughs> <laughs> Where a lion arm, probably a puppeteer wearing a, a paw sleeve, smashes through the door and swipes at John. With a hammer and nails, they board over the freshly punched hole in the door. And then we get a quick montage of the rest of the family boarding over all the other points of entry with bookshelves. Later that night, we see the exhausted family huddled around the fireplace as the camera slowly backs away into the darkness of the house. We get a quiet moment between Maggie and Casey. She doesn't understand why this is happening, and Casey explains it to her using the story of the Savo Lions. The true story that became the basis of 1996's The Ghost in the Darkness, the Savo Lions were responsible for over 200 deaths. But based on how Casey retells the story, it sounds like this film was loosely based on that historical event, but like translated to a modern time. Not unlike what they did last year with When Time Ran Out, where we adapted the true story of this volcano erupting into a completely fabricated story, but then one character in the story mentions the real story. Yeah. <laughs> While Casey and Maggie continue their chat, Christy wakes up and moves around the house wrapped in a blanket. She notices her tennis racket outside through a window. Of course, because she hasn't been traumatized enough to quit tennis for her entire life, she opens the window and crawls out to retrieve the tennis racket and is quite predictably dragged out of the house by a lion. She's maybe three feet out the door when Casey comes flying after them with a rifle, bashing it against the lion until it drops Christy and attacks him. John fires on the lion multiple times to save his father, who doesn't have so much as a scratch on him when they reclose the front doors. The swarm of starving lions move in to eat the one that John just killed. Which they said that they couldn't do. Tom Scarrett has a line. He's like, you can't kill a lion with this. Yeah. I was like, Apparently I can. Casey grabs a lamp to investigate Christie's wounds, 
The scratches on her arm look superficial, but if I were him, I would just take it off at the elbow with a machete so that my daughter gave up tennis, at least for the length of this <laughs> lion situation. Surprisingly, Maggie doesn't take the opportunity to remind Casey how easy it is to lose track of your children in this yeah, situation. Because right? <laughs> they were both in the kitchen not paying attention to yeah. where the kids were. But I just, ugh, just drives me crazy that, that, that they're this dumb. Like, yeah. you just... Why are you opening any of these doors and windows for any reason whatsoever? The next morning, Casey wants to get a look outside, so he bashes open the window, knocking the shutters off the outside of the house. Casey gets a lion in his sights, but he doesn't pull the trigger because somewhere in the back of his mind, he predicts that this lion will kill someone he doesn't care for, (laughs) and so it should survive. Yeah, I, I I was like, my note is, now shoot it, shoot it, and then whatever. Do they have limited bullets or something? Not like, that we've seen. I, I guess, I think what they were trying to do was that it wasn't... The lion's s- fault. Yeah, this, this, this wasn't a sporting kill. Who who cares? What? No, I <laughs> I, don't, I agree. That's why I'm saying shoot it. But I think in Tom Skerritt's mind that this was like, no, yeah. I can't. He's like, this is just a starving lion trying to feed his family. I would do the same thing in his situation. But he would also shoot me with a gun if he were in my situation. Yeah. Yeah. A single-engine plane flies low over the house, and John and Wendy climb out on the roof to try and get its attention. They seem to think the plane didn't notice them, but I don't know how they're making that determination because he has no way to send a signal back to them. Also, they just climb out onto the roof with lions everywhere. Yeah. Like, are you kidding me? Like, you could just leave or get up onto the roof? Yeah. I mean, Can't the lions also get on the roof? I would they didn't so. one come down the chimney? Exactly. Yes. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, there's lions on the roof at least before there were. I've seen a cat jump seven feet in the air, mm-hmm. and it wasn't a big cat. It was a regular cat. <laughs> Their plan to get back in the house is pretty stupid. In fact, plan is the wrong word because they didn't even discuss it. Wendy goes down first without saying anything and then just runs to a pair of double doors that she opens to go inside, alerting a bunch of lions to the porch. John follows her several seconds later, and much closer to the lions, he manages to get through the door, barely closing it in time to keep the lions out. Wait, why Okay, why aren't they going in the way they came out, first of all? Yeah. There's an idea. Second of all, aren't all these doors nailed shut? Yeah, and barricaded on the other yes. side? Mm-hmm. Casey calls them both damn fools for trying to get the plane's attention. Wendy seems all worked up by their encounter with the lions, and it looks like the step-cousins are finally going to get to business. In the kitchen, Maggie is cooking eggs for breakfast, Casey sneaks up behind her to flirt with her a bit, and the conversation seems playfully adversarial. The step-cousins are rudely cock-blocked by a new magical lion that can bust through all the heavy-duty barricades that they've surrounded the building with. A bunch more lions pour into the house behind it, but John and Wendy manage to get out and stack furniture against another door to block off the rest of the house. See, this is the first thing I would have done. Instead of nailing, trying to cover every single window in the house, I would have secured a single location, maybe one or two other small rooms, like a bathroom in the kitchen, Yeah. yeah. with with better barricades yes. rather than exactly. loosely barricading the entire house. Yeah. Yeah. And maybe don't let people go into more than one room where you're not all within eyesight of each other. Mm-hmm. Casey starts putting a plan together to build some sort of mobile fortress that they can use to get to the van in the yard. He suspects that they can take the vehicle even though it has multiple flats because it will drive on rims for as long as they need it to. It reminds me of a moment in Tremors when they decide that they're going to use the Caterpillar to drag that massive trailer with the flat tires because it's strong enough. 
They start hammering together extra storm shutters and sections of gate that they had in storage. Why wasn't this already being used as barricades? <laughs> yeah. I know. That was driving me crazy. I'm like, what? You had wrought iron wrought structure? I- yeah. <laughs> and it actually seems like they take t- took some of these off of the like interior hallways, their yeah. wrought iron mm-hmm. gates. And I'm like, where have these been, guys? <laughs> yeah. They're, they're like... They're probably the lion protecting gates that they would have had installed. Yeah. They had to take them off of the house for the movie. Christy suggests using the piano wheels to make it rollable. Suddenly, Derek is pulling down the street toward the house, and they scream out the window to him to warn him, but he doesn't notice the 30 lions running at him full speed until one tackles him to the ground. This is the second shot that's clearly a person getting hit full speed with an angry lion. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. And he's walking up to the house like, why are all the windows boarded up? I can't hear what you're shouting. Yeah. What are all these lions doing here? Ah, (laughs) lions! Casey and John both try firing at the animals, but they're not dissuaded by gunshots this time, and they stick around to chew Derek into pieces. Maggie is understandably distraught, but hey, now there's a brand new, fully functional car in the yard. We cut to Maggie mourning as she looks through mementos from her relationship with Derek, and she opens a mirrored cabinet. When she gets to the second door of the cabinet, we can see in the reflection that there's a lion sleeping on the floor behind her in the room. How this particular lion got in, we don't waste any time explaining. But she's so angry about Derek's death that she's throwing things at the lion and eventually scares it out of the room. But also, like, these lions are trying to get in out of desperation to eat. I don't think one would just crawl in and just be like, eh, I'm just going to take enough. a nap I'm here behind food. <laughs> I'm just going to take a quick nap behind this sandwich. <laughs> Casey has to run in and drag her out of the room to save the lion. Very suddenly, all the lions develop superpowers and are able to bust through all the windows and smash out all the barricades to get into the house. Luckily, at the same time, the family are putting the finishing touches on their mobile fortress. Casey moves to collect a handful of spears for the road, and then when the lions finally burst into the living room, John's rifle jams, and they barely duck into their new cage before the animals get to them. Weirdly, though, the top half of the cage walls are shutters that pivot out, so that all the lions would need to do is perform the very natural movement of trying to look under the shutter to lift it up and get inside the cage. Yeah. With everyone inside the mobile fortress, they start moving along the floor like it's a Mad Max version of a Flintstones car. They get to the front doors. (laughs) (laughs) They get to the front doors, and they use the spears to stab them into the doors and then pull the front doors open. The trickiest part of this process is getting the mobile cage down the steps of the porch without letting the lions get through the cracks at the bottom the lions start bashing the sides of the cage until it's coming apart at the seams and as they roll it down the steps there is one lion that like kind of gets his hand underneath and almost grabs Mm -hmm. somebody's leg that was a little scary another lion is sleeping on top and several are still trying to find their way in okay so this bothers me you have spears and yeah. this lion has got to be several hundred pounds. Easily. Stab that lion. Get him off of the top of the thing. Well, this what thing... if you stab him too good and you kill him and now it's just <laughs> more stab. Stabby stab him more off stab. the roof because this is draining lion blood on <laughs> yeah, him. Just I'm like just saying like <laughs> drinking it as it trips into the cage. It is not helping you move this giant ass cage down if you got a several hundred pound lion yeah. on top of it. <laughs> They get the cage across the yard and out onto the driveway until it's completely alongside Derek's car. Casey takes off his jacket and wraps it around a spear before lighting it to create a torch. 
He waves the torch around outside the cage to distract the creatures who don't seem to give a shit about fire. Yeah. I don't think they have a lot of experience with it. Also, man- they could go around to the other side of the car where there is no fire. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> he manages to get out of the cage and scares the lions back long enough for his family to get into Derek's car, and then he follows them in. At the last second, Casey throws the new torch under the Jeep that he drove in on, and the gas puddle underneath causes the whole thing to explode. John pulls the car out of the driveway and off down the road, and everyone just sits in silence, thinking about the traumatic events that just took place. The closing title card reads, This story was based upon actual events. During the past five years of drought, 742 attacks upon humans have resulted in 400 deaths, and the drought continues. The end. Like, super loosely based, I'm yeah. guessing. Because this is this seems so ridiculous. A lion attacked a person. <laughs> yeah. Possibly attacked a house with a person in it. Yeah, but not this giant, you know, plantation house. And not one that was well, fairly well fortified. And right. The, it's kind of ridiculous at the end, considering how aggressive these lions have been. And I realize it's because they lions aren't actually being that aggressive at the ones that they're filming. They're just, just sitting there while they get out of the car and yeah. or they get out of the, the fortress and into the car. Like, they're not trying to attack. And how aggressive they've been, I don't think that little tiny torch would have done a damn thing. Yeah. They're also professional hunters in that they don't just let one person go, one lion go at a time to hunt. They work together, yeah. And and the fact that they weren't trying to flank this car, yeah, seems really unrealistic. Parts of the movie remind me of like the pandemic situation, <laughs> because really, like, there's this deadly threat outside, and all they have to do is stay in the house until it's taken care of. But instead, they just keep making plans to go outside. <laughs> it's like, <laughs> stop doing that. You don't need your tennis racket. You don't need to practice your forehand. Just stay in the house. Yeah. Or go on the roof to get the plane's attention. It's like, yeah. people know you live here. Someone's going to come eventually. You have yeah. plenty of food. We never get any indication that they're like running low on supplies right. to survive with. My big question was, where are they getting power from? I thought that the, the power was going to be an issue, like a generator at some point. That like, makes sense, yeah. Like, we can't we can't use the radio if the generator goes out, so we have to fuel up the generator. Well, maybe it's it's just hardline to the house. But, but yeah, but, but from where? And if, if you have power lines coming from an exterior location like the city yeah then you probably would have a hard phone line or telegraph system as well yeah, yeah you would think like you wouldn't just rely on a wireless radio that makes sense i kept waiting for like the power to go out and that was going to be oh the generator we're not we haven't fueled the generator yeah and we wasted all of our gas for no reason mm-hmm. but we still have plenty of eggs yeah I did think it was kind of silly that they seemed like they were trying to just live their life like it was completely normal. Right. Even after the lions had attacked. And it's like, well, hold on. We should be like rationing everything. We could be here for months. We don't know. Yeah. We don't know when someone's coming back. And if someone's coming back, if they're going to be stupid and just walk up to the house all willy nilly. That's true. But I feel like that airplane going over the house was a sign that help was already on the way. Mm. Because I feel like the fact that he happened to go right over the house meant that he was looking for people. But yeah, there there were a lot of parts that reminded me of Tremors, actually, mm. because it's a very similar situation where they're all trapped in a place and they can't go outside. And yeah, it's, it's like like the the first Purge or like a Night of the Living Dead. Yeah, you know, like we we have to secure ourselves and and because even the way they barricaded the door was very like zombie movie like where it's just diagonal, like yeah, haphazard and ju- but just enough that that they because they can't 
just walk through. Right. Like, because zombies aren't the intelligent where they can, like, they'll figure out a way to wiggle in. They'll just keep trying to reach for you. Yeah. Where these lions are just so incredibly powerful that I don't think that any wood, enough wood would stop them. I also don't think, because it seems like their strategy once they realize that that the lions could pull this Santa Claus maneuver was to always have the fire going in the living room. Because yeah, for yeah, the rest yeah. of the movie, there's a lit fire there. But I don't think the lions were smart enough to know not to go down a fireplace because there's fire in it. Like, I feel like they would have just jumped down and gone into the house and killed everybody. Yeah. I don't know. See, my problem with this versus those other movies that have a similar premise is that I just don't feel like the lions are a significant enough threat you know whereas you know tremors like those the the graboids they're i mean they're just so so much bigger and more powerful and like can can do so much more than a lion can yeah and i feel like the same thing could be true well i guess it depends on which zombie movie you're watching in terms of what capabilities a zombie has but like everything that's attacking you from outside the house i feel like the lion is the least threatening out of all of these yeah because you could just be sitting in a window picking them off one at a time yeah like in the uh, Snyder Dawn of the Dead where they, they, the one guy at the gun shop across the street that's just standing there shooting people in the crowd and it's like that makes sense to do because there's a lot of humans out here and all of them are going to try and kill you later so yeah. you might as well kill as many of them as you can yeah. especially if you own a gun shop just stand up here and kill 500 people every day yeah but but the fact that he, they're not even like luring them close right like it's like if if the if the problem is that the shotgun will not be powerful enough at range, but you Get clearly yeah you clearly just have the little girl reach for her tennis racket and yeah. when they come yeah, yeah, you yeah. blast them in no, the face bait them closer and shoot them in the face that that'll do it yeah <laughs> well uh, thumbs down for me unfortunately I th- I think it's probably a thumbs down for me also yeah it's it it didn't do anything for me and I thought it would be much more exciting yeah uh, and not so much. Just sitting around. All in one house. Establishing character backstory. Yeah, which didn't play into anything, really. It, it would have if she died. Right. Like, Maybe. like I, I would like to know more Wait, about a Wait, who character. died? Christy? Or? Yeah, the, well, the, 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 the niece. Oh, Wendy. Okay. Yeah, the one who, who gave us so much about her yeah, life since history. Yeah, movie rules dictate that if you're not an immediate family member, that it's not it's less of a tragedy if you're murdered. Yeah, so so give give me some reason to be sad by, like, this is her life. Yeah. You know? Uh, maybe make the tennis racket was a gift that Casey gave to his daughter and really wanted her to play tennis, and so she can't not have... Like... Give her a reason to reach for that tennis racket other than she's Oh, yeah, tennis. I have that contest coming up if I survive (laughs) this weekend. Yeah. It just, there wasn't, there was just not enough that happened in this movie. Certainly not enough that dictates a four or five million dollar budget. No. Mm -hmm. That's crazy. And shooting it in Kenya and, and Brazil, you'd think it'd be cheaper. Yeah. Like, what is the point of going to those locations if it's not cheaper? Right. 100%. Yeah. You couldn't find a house here? Well, and the really cool things that could happen in these movies, like the lion attacks, were generally cut around so that they didn't actually have to use real lions in most of these situations right. where we're just switching between lion camera POV and a dude super in a lion tight, costume and hugging super tight Tom close-ups mm-hmm. of like yeah of, of of arms or lions or whatever. And and there was two that that looked like they were real attacks, and they honestly were just more 
disturbing and upsetting because I'm like, I don't know how you guys um, did this one. And so that's kind of just. I think Derek cool. getting hit was actually Ralph Helfer playing Derek, like stunt replacing him. So he's the lion trainer mm. who who does all that. I, I also feel maybe the reason they shot in those countries is that uh, I, I mentioned yeah. insurance. Lacks well, rules about letting <laughs> lions attack your cats. Yeah. L- yeah. Less rules and probably less. Um, animal rights rules. Oh, that's true. About yeah. how these so they could just being... shoot the lions if they're getting out of hand. Exactly. Uh, Letterbox, what are you thinking? Um, I didn't have it particularly high because I really feel like I don't need to see it again, and I don't know who I'm going to tell to go watch this movie to. I have it at sixty-three out of sixty-nine. Oh my gosh! It's below Happy Birthday to Me and above Hard Country. Richard. I just lost it here. Oh, here we go. <clears throat> uh, I have it at 54, uh, which puts it below Pinball Summer and above The Burning. Wow, I have it the highest of all of us. Um, I have it in 49th. Wow, you loved this one. Apparently. <laughs> uh, I have it just under Image of the Beast and just above Earthbound. Mm-hmm. Our writer-director here, Robert L. Collins, most of his directing credits are TV movies outside of this, but he also has an uncredited participating writer credit on IMDb for Whose Life Is It Anyway, which we'll touch on at the end of this season. The other writer, Robert Blees, also wrote Frogs and Dr. Fibes Rides Again. This was his last feature credit. The story came from Ralph Helfer. He was the provider and trainer of all of the animals in the film. Helfer was also the one-time owner of the Vasquez Rocks, until the property was cut in half by the construction of the Antelope Valley Freeway. Helfer left to build a compound that he named Africa USA in Soledad Canyon, where he trained such famous animals as Judy, the chimp from Doctari, Bruno, a.k.a. Ben, from Gentle Ben, and even Zamba, a.k.a. Leo the Lion, from the MGM logo. He trained that lion. The Africa USA compound was also used as a shooting location for Doctari and an episode of Star Trek the original series, Shore Leave. Okay, so this cuz Doctari was in like the 70s. Right. So so he had this compound for a while. Yes. Helfer also directed Second Unit on Savage Harvest, which makes perfect sense because they want someone who can be around these lions to shoot all the stuff where you have to be close to them. Last season, he was an animal supervisor on Galaxina, The Last Flight of Noah's Ark. Smokey and the Bandit 2, Alligator, and Any Which Way You Can. And this season, he works on Windwalker, Going Ape, This, Wolfen, and Tarzan the Ape Man. The story credit was for Ken Noyle. This was his only credit. The music came from Robert Folk. This was his first score, but he had some hits in the 80s, like Police Academies 1 through 6, Bachelor Party, Can't Buy Me Love, and later, Never Ending Story 2, Rockadoodle, Thief and the Cobbler, A Troll in Central Park, Theodore Rex, Loaded Weapon 1, Lawnmower Man 2, and Kung Pao Enter the Fist. Boy, there's a lot of ups and downs in that yeah. list. <laughs> and he's still working, too. With some, like, some Don Bluth stuff in there. And... Yeah, there's a couple of animated ones there. Cinematographer Ronnie Taylor, uh, he was the camera operator on The Devils, Phantom of the Paradise, and Star Wars A New Hope. He was the DP on Tommy, Gandhi, and A Chorus Line, among others. Editor Patrick Kennedy edited Airplane and Coast to Coast last season. Later, he cuts Mr. Mom and Major Payne. The other editor, Scott K. Wallace, this was his first editing credit. Second was Weird Science. He also cut Remote Control, 
Child's Play 3, and then mostly television after that. He has assistant editing credits on Airplane, 16 Candles, Breakfast Club, Child's Play 1, Angels in the Outfield, Leprechaun 3, and Bullworth. Tom Skerritt played Casey. This performance was right off of Alien. We reviewed his work in MASH for a Patreon episode last year. He's also in Harold and Maude, Up in Smoke, The Dead Zone, Top Gun, and we've also discussed his cameo as himself in Seth MacFarlane's Ted. <laughs> My daughter better still be alive, you son of a bitch. <laughs> Fetter to the lions. Michelle Phillips played Maggie. We saw her last year as Gina in The Man with Bogart's Face, and she's also in the last movie directed by her husband at the time, Dennis Hopper, which did not win our poll for a 50th anniversary review. She was Ann Sumner in 89 episodes of Knott's Landing, but she's probably best known as one of the Mamas from The Mamas and the Papas, which explains her extensive soundtrack credits on IMDb, mostly for California Dreamin', mm-hmm. and also for her decent singing voice in all the Beatles covers. Sean Stevens played John. He seems to be working a lot lately. For a while, he was best known for long-running appearances on Search for Tomorrow and Days of Our Lives. I'm guessing he and Robbie Benson went head-to-head for a lot of parts, because they look very similar to me. Anne-Marie Martin played Wendy. She played another Wendy last year in Prom Night, and she's back this season in The Boogans and Halloween 2. She had a long run, almost 300 episodes, on Days of Our Lives, and she was Dory Darrow on Sledgehammer. She also has one writing credit, but it's a doozy because she co-wrote Twister with Michael Crichton, her husband at the time. Derek Partridge played Derek. Not many credits I recognized. Arthur Mallet played Magruder. He's Mr. Dawes Jr. and Mary Poppins. He's a museum guard in Bedknobs and Broomsticks. He was one of the hitchhikers in our Patreon review of Vanishing Point. He voices Mr. Ages in Secret of Nim. He was a pathologist in a MacGyver episode. Yeah. He's Toodles in Hook. He's Owen Owens in Toys. And he's great. I love this guy. Oh, I didn't realize that. I, w- I was thinking he looked familiar. And now I'm, now I'm totally seeing him as Toodles and, and the guy. I don't remember the character's name from Toys. but Owen Owens. Owen yeah. Owens. There you go. <laughs> I still can't hear you. <laughs> <laughs> Tana Helfer played Christy. This was her only acting credit. And as I said before, she is the daughter of animal trainer Ralph Helfer and probably a trainer herself. Zamba Jr. played the most prominently featured lion. And he is presumably the child of Zamba who played the MGM lion. I think that's everything for Savage Harvest. Savage Harvest, is that what it's called? Yeah. Yeah. Why is it called Savage Harvest? Because <laughs> they were being harvested. I guess. Oh. And it was savage. Savagely harvested. I guess that's everything for Savage Harvest. If you guys have any thoughts you'd like to share, we are Vintage Video Pod on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and Letterboxd, where, as I said before, you can find each of our full movie rankings for the year. We can also be found at VintageVideoPodcast.com. We have a Discord. Join the 24-7 movie chat and share your thoughts on episodes past, present, and future at VintageVideoPodcast.com slash Discord. And if you're listening on YouTube, don't forget to subscribe. And because this is our first episode of the month again, I wanted to remind our listeners about the Patreon campaign. We'll always be free, but if it's worth it to you, a donation as small as a buck a month is greatly appreciated. $5 patrons get a shout-out on the show, a monthly exclusive episode reviewing a title from the 70s, and a hand in choosing each month's film. As an added bonus this year, we're starting to fill in some of the blanks from last year with about 20 minisodes reviewing titles that didn't make the cut from 1980. Joining now unlocks 21 full-size 70s reviews, and 18 minisodes. For November of 1971, our $5 patrons are choosing between the following five titles. Black Beauty, the fourth adaptation of Anna Sewell's 1877 novel of the same name about the life of a horse, 
starring Mark Lester and Walter Slezak. The Female Bunch, another Al Adamson film starring Russ Tamblin and Lon Chaney Jr. about a gang of man-hating women criminals causing trouble at the Mexican border. Fiddler on the Roof, Norman Jewison's musical comedy drama about a Jewish father marrying off three of his daughters, adapted from the 1964 musical of the same name, starring Topol, Norma Crane, and Leonard Frey. Play Misty for Me, Clint Eastwood's psychological thriller about a radio DJ stalked by an obsessive fan, starring the late great Jessica Walter and Donna Mills. And El Topo, Alejandro Jodorowsky's acid western about a gunfighter and his bizarre adventures in the desert, each of which will be celebrating their 50th anniversary this November. Is El Topo the one I've seen? You've seen The Holy Mountain. Oh, for some reason in my head, those are the same movie. Well, they play as double features a lot, and they're both really great. I love El Topo, and I love The Holy Mountain. Thank you so much for listening, and I hope you'll join us next time when we'll be discussing The Monster Club, which IMDb describes like so. A writer of horror stories is invited to a monster club by a mysterious old gentleman. There, three gruesome stories are told to him. Between each story, some musicians play their songs. We leave you now with a trailer for The Monster Club. I will take you to a place where my friends foregather. There you will find stories of such blood-curdling terror it will make your toes curl and your hair reach up towards the sky. He likes to take you by surprise. He likes to leave a very special calling card. It was the best blood I have ever tasted. He's giving you a very special invitation. Three stories to shock you. Chill you. <laughs> thrill you. And make you laugh. Everybody knows about garlic and steaks through the heart. Yes, we all have our cross to bear. I'm just a sucker. one of his kind now. You have to be staked by your own men. Songs by B.A. Robertson. Don't you look down on me. Night. With the strange twist. The pretty things. The viewers. Tell me you're not going to let you go until you do. We must have our food. But remember, he likes to take you by surprise. You've been invited to the Monster Club. Come at your peril.